You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. So, Brie, we've covered Jesus and Empire as a starting place for how, how we think about ourselves as political animals in the world today and what Jesus taught and emulated in that way. And now we're shifting gears here to the personal is political. What is it about this theme that strikes you as an important aspect of how we're relating to the universal Christ in our day-to-day lived realities? Uh, Paul, when you said political animals, are you referring to the donkey and the elephant or? Oh, I'm more of a dolphin when it comes to political animals. Okay, got it. In all seriousness though, this is a really important conversation. It was hard to have, heavy at times, but very critical for us to explore. I mean, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this is because if we're not paying attention to how our spirituality or how these huge ideas are lived out into our world at the social level, then really, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if our um, our spirituality, our faith, our ways of living these these traditions isn't being have any impact on how we're relating to one another, to bodies, to others, all these terminologies that kind of can get us into into sticky situations where we become to as politics, not only as something that can like divide us, but also bring us together. Yeah, that's right. Somebody told me, um, and I forget where I got this from, but that, you know, one of the problems is that we have a tendency to think about politics as what's happening at the governmental level, as opposed to seeing that, no, politics is the art of relationship and how we structure those relationships. So if that's true, if politics is how we structure relationships, then everything we do and all the ways that we relate or choose to relate is making a political statement. Yeah, and it's a much more refreshing, believable way to approach politics. We think about this this interpersonal relational level and that it just builds, it complexifies. And you know, when you think of large groups of people, of course that's still politics, but it also has to deal with How's my school doing in my local neighborhood? Mm-hmm. How are these things going in my own district when it comes to the, the health of my waterways and my systems? Mm-hmm. And look, talking about politics is a total faux pas right now, right? right? Like it's just, this is a super heated topic. And so we just want to offer to our listeners, you know, our approach to this is not about claiming that one side is right and the other side is wrong at all. In fact, what we're trying to do in this conversation is to say, what, how, how do the values that we've been discussing mm-hmm. and exploring together, these values that Richard is teaching us from the universal Christ, how does that invite us into a different way to relate to each other, especially right now, for instance, in the United States where it, this political milieu is nasty? Yeah. How can we engage in conversations from different political sides and recognize we're each coming from different viewpoints and that's okay, but hold each other's viewpoint with, with love and tenderness as we each hope to create a better way of being in the world, not only for ourselves, but those who are in different positions. That's right. One thing that Richard does so well with the universal Christ is the way he talks about different distinctions and just having to name them before we can speak of the union between the two. Mm-hmm. And I think that same in a, in a political climate like this, where the things are so partisan, mm-hmm. how can we not live out of those identified partisan politics, but to see each other as human humans in relationship with politics. And that first we ground ourselves in that humanity before we begin to, you know, cast off others by their own affiliations to different political parties. I think that we have gotten so divided yeah, and especially around politics. I think this is the perfect time for us to explore 
how the universal Christ can really invite us to see from the heart mm. instead of from the polarized ideas and weaponized values that we use against one another and how we can really begin to see from oneness as Richard is describing so that we can connect with one another and um, yeah invite a, a different energy into our world right now that our world so desperately needs yeah it's like one of those phrases that keeps coming up in our conversation is we're all in this together mm-hmm. and like how can we start from that place so with that let's dive right into this conversation on how the personal is political Richard, in The Universal Christ, you talk about the relationship between the personal and the universal. And oftentimes, especially recently, uh, and right now in the United States, I hear people saying, well, I'm not really a political person, or I just hate politics. But that feels like such an oxymoron. Uh, because if we understand politics to be the art of how we structure our relationships, in the way that you were describing about Jesus and his healing ministry of restructuring relationships, then isn't it true that everything is spiritual, therefore the political is both spiritual and a personal concern? You know, we do much better if we talk about uh, partisan politics is the problem. Mm. Uh, Precisely what we're saying when we say dualistic thinking, the taking of sides. But every act is a standing with one group of power or another. To absolutely say nothing, your power position is the status quo. I am defending and legitimating by saying nothing that how things are right now here in River City are wonderful. That's your political statement. But have no doubt that is a political statement. And this false innocence, a lot of Christians want to claim, I'm above that fray. uh, I'm not political. Um, And the, the standing for the status quo is precisely what's made most people think falsely, I think, (laughs) uh, that Christianity is inherently a conservative religion in the true meaning of the term. Conservare in Latin means to preserve, a museum, a monument, a past-oriented religion. So uh, we're dealing with this all over the world. People who love the past are the way we did it here in River City. Uh, these are the true Christians. Mm. That, that balloon has to be punctured because it is not true to Jesus at all. Mm. Look at the way he moves through Israel, critiquing, uh, changing, healing, uh, not in an angry way. So we, we need to make a distinction in partisan politics and that every act is political. To not act at all is to be falsely conservative. Mm but tends to give conservative positions what they think, I don't think so, is the moral high ground. Mm. This is what it means to be Christian, to preserve the status quo. Mm. Or at least to preserve the status quo among my elite group, my partisan group. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, I think one of the things that shifted for me is understanding the political as how we structure our relationships. Mm. Therefore, you know, like you said, every choice we make is political. political. Our non-action is political. Mm. Our non-choice making is political because it's, it's basically anything that we do is communicating how we structure our relationships or what we believe about our, the, the way that things should be structured in our relationships to each other, to the planet, yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, I was just going to say, especially anyone's inability to critique their own power relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the biggie. That you cannot see how much power you have as a white man, as an ordained person, as a straight person, as an American person. <clears throat> Until that ability emerges, you are 
totally political, mm. naively, and, and at this point it's becoming a scary naivete mm. that this group thinks it's above criticism. Yeah. I got an angry letter from a recent graduate of the living school saying we are dualistic because we're talking about white privilege. Mm. And of course she's a white privileged woman. Uh, but she was angry. I don't think she's going to say much good about the school. It's amazing that she stayed with it till the end, accepted her graduation, uh, but doesn't want to hear uh, her call to critique her power position as an educated white woman. Mm. You know? Yeah, it's so hard to see yourself in that, right? In that structure of relationships. Is, and where you are falling short in your own areas of, uh, of growth and privilege that, that you were born with that you just can't name. Can't name it. Um, it's funny, you know, we're talking about the structure of relationships. There was, um, which I recently heard this poet talk about, uh, he's also a faculty member at a university. And when, after our current president was elected, the students said, what do we do? Like, how do we engage in politics? How, how are we supposed to relate? And what's our response? And he said, well, I don't know what you should do immediately, but I do know that over the next few years that you should get to know 25 local songbirds by their song and 25 local trees by their Jeez. leaves. He said, because culture is based upon humanity's relationship to nature, which builds culture with built politics. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that stunning? <clears throat> and it's a way to like, how do we relate differently? Yeah. We have to go back to how we're relating to nature. Yeah, and there's true. something about that. How does that strike you, Richard, when you hear that? You know, even as a Franciscan, I remember when I first heard that kind of talk, I thought that's sentimental schlock. Because mm. I was trained in the classic rational way of thinking. But what it does is rebase I'm going to use some big words, but I'll try to... Reality in facticity. <laughs> uh, in, you know, I'll look especially at animals. That that... I was looking at a mother rhinoceros seemingly smiling. <laughs> it was a lovely picture yesterday. At her cute little baby rhinoceros. Now, normally a baby rhinoceros is not very cute. But she was just... <laughs> it was so dear how she was nuzzling it. Uh, and I said, the facticity of that fat old rhinoceros. Why did God create that? That's a fact. I'm looking at it. I can touch it. It was a picture. Uh, <clears throat> deceitful words from a deceitful government are not facts. That's why I went out of the way in writing The Universal Christ to say it's another name for everything. Mm. Words are not things. The word became flesh. And, and concepts and opinions and philosophies, I'm not saying we don't find them helpful or need them once in a while, but they're not really the Christ. The Christ is facticity. And so to know 25 bird songs, you've got to encounter the facticity I really doubt if that's a word, but I remember it being used in philosophy cl classes of 25 different birds. Mm. What is it that's so grounding about that? Mm. It regrounds you in nature instead of words and, the thisness. and books. In thisness, of yeah. course. Not just thingness, but this thing, mm -hmm. this bird. Yeah, uh, I was out in the yard again yesterday, and did I tell you I saw an owl? No. no. A great big owl. My goodness, it must have been two feet tall up in that same tree. Flew out and on a fence post and just stood there looking at me wow. with those big owl eyes. And I said, if I wouldn't have come back here to walk Opie, I wouldn't have seen this almost epiphany. Mm. I can see why owls are used as common symbols. It mm -hmm. was just the way it stared at me, of course, those big eyes. Mm. And when it flew, the first 
movement was sound, but then absolutely quiet. Don't hear a thing. Why is that? I think it's because it's facticity as opposed to opinion. Mm. That owl exists and you cannot deny it. Uh, mm. And therefore you have to ask the question, why does an owl exist? <laughs> and such a big one in my own backyard. Mm -hmm. How does an owl persist in the desert like we live in? Do you, were you here when we found five little baby owls? I don't think so. What? Under uh, yeah, oh, they were the cutest little things, oh my oh my and then and the mother gosh. hid them there behind our our vineyard at, uh -huh. at the other building, and I don't know who it was on the staff said, "Come, come, come!" We pulled these. There's these five little things just oh they just gosh. looking at us. They didn't leave. You could tell they were obeying their mother's instructions. <laughs> Don't move. And we all came out. We're taking pictures. Someone must still have pictures wow. of that. But again, the facticity of that, there's something that touches the level of the miraculous, the meaningful, the mysterious, the good, mm -hmm. the necessary. Those are the categories that change you. Mm. It reminds me of your value of devotion. Yes. Because yes. it puts you in the heart instead of being in our heads and our minds that tend to attack and split the field dualistically. But in the heart, it seems like from that place of grounding, maybe our political, personal perspectives can be expanded and, and it can include a more grounded, um, heart-centered way of engaging. Yeah. In, engaging in a particular place, not just, you know. Yes, yes. Abstractly. Yes. Abstract politics, but like I care about this place. I care about that owl. Mm -hmm. Also, that might just change the way I relate to who I support running for yep, a local yep, office because yep. they ca also care about care that about owl. An owl. Yeah. Yeah. It's that real. It's It's got to be concrete somewhere or it's just theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can disbelieve it as easily as you believe it. Mm. But I can't disbelieve that owl sitting on the branch. Yeah. Much less the five little cute versions of mother. Just <laughs> mm. two inches tall. I can't Picture stand it. Picture an owl that yeah. just that tall. No. Just looking at That's you. That's too much. <laughs> Never blinking. <laughs> oh, adorable. And I'm thinking back to what you were saying earlier in that previous episode about... Uh, Healing being the opposite of was a judgment uh, or punishment that you're punishment punishment yes. and um, and how healing also plays in role like uh, of of healing place land is also very political and how Jesus his ministry of healing was a political act how how was it a political act what what was he doing in the act of uh, healing individuals as the gateway of the personal to the universal yes. how what was that speaking to say empire or politics in general. You know, back in the 70s when I was involved in the healing ministry, there were so many study groups studying who got healed, what were the patterns. And you go through the four Gospels, and honestly, there's no pattern. In mm. other words, it's not the believers, it's not the people who proved their goodness, it's not the people who asked Jesus for a healing. It's completely random. Mm. And some who don't ask at all get healed. Some clearly unworthy ones get healed. So you can see there's a miracle of, of communion, grace, transformation that human beings are not fully in control of. That's a political act because we want to limit healing. Let's just call it salvation. And they come from the same root word. Spanish is what? So, Salvar. No, that'd be to Health. say... Health. Sanidad. Uh, yeah, that's probably it, yeah. Um, it's the same word as health. Um, if, if it's up to us, I mean, this is the fight in America today. It's uh, the wealthy, well-healed people who deserve health care. So in Jesus, this is what he's doing, providing free health care, right? Everywhere he goes, free health care, free health care. He's ignoring and critiquing 
the system of health, where that's made clear is the story where it says this old woman, 38 year, for 38 years she'd wasted all of her money on doctors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Jesus comes in one moment and gives her what she wants. Uh, but we just weren't trained to know how to read these politically and to recognize that we live in systems that have clear social categories of worthiness and unworthiness. For housing, look, look at our homeless problem. Mm -hmm. The richest country in the world. In fact, the richest empire the world has ever known. And they said in, in at least Los Angeles and, and San Francisco, maybe the most comfortable, beautiful state, it's now an epidemic. The amount of, and people don't know how to bring tourists to San Francisco and Los Angeles because you cannot avoid them. They're everywhere. Wow. Wow. So when you see what a community is excluding, mm. that's the easiest way to track down what that society is worshiping. All right. Mm. <laughs> You know, and when there's not housing, people are building 35-room houses. And these are couples who have no children. Mm. It blows your mind. Why? Just the use of resources to build all these, these houses. So housing and classy houses, and that's our idolatry, mm. among many others, too. So can you see just by those few flimsy examples how it is a social statement? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it really is. Yeah. The offering of free health care, the, the rearranging of relationships, and the exposing of power relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, who has all the power? Who has no power? Mm -hmm. And so invariably when he leads people back into the village, back into the city, He's saying, you do belong, and they told you, you don't belong. Mm -hmm. And in some of them it says, and he could not even re-enter the city. We're not going to change our notion of who the good guys are and the bad guys are. Mm. So he has to stay on the fringe of town. We like things the way we are, where we're the good people, and you're the bad person. Oh, it's just filled with that. If we had had preaching that for years had used those examples that are all there, I think we would have seen the social implications of the gospel. Yeah. And what a great line you said about what we exclude tells us about what we worship. What we worship. That's what a great right. tool to, to, to unveil what you can't see. Uh -huh. mm. yeah. Took me a long time to learn all these things, too. And largely, or at least partly, maybe largely, uh, I learned that by having to preach every Sunday and how to give And I'd look at a text and say, what is this saying now? What's this saying now? Not just, let's love Jesus more because he worked miracles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. We were talking about the example of Jesus and, and how he creatively resisted the empire and, um, you know, his, his nonviolence, uh, non-engagement in some, some ways, choosing mm. not to participate in the oppression, his simplicity and his healing. And, you know, I, I feel with this upcoming, um, what we're facing in our country in, in the United States right now, there's this tendency to fall into either complete cynicism <laughs> that makes us not want to participate or this zealotry of reactivity in, in how we participate. How can we learn from Jesus's example on how we engage politically in, a, in an active but contemplative way? In the practical order, it comes down to not othering any others. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I know, I mean, I'm as angry as anybody at 
the political system in this country. So I certainly have a level in which I'm othering. But remember what I said before, you have to distinguish before you can reunite. So we don't go into some naivete, oh, there's no difference between this, all politics is evil all the time everywhere. We've reached a point of such total disgust for human values that this isn't, uh, there's no moral equivalence between it's always been this way or it always needs to be this way. This need, needs to be called out. But then after you've called it out, your response, and here you better go to prayer and better, better go to love, uh, has to be a non-dual response, okay? I think you're full of it. <laughs> Let's just be crude about it. Okay, after I've made that harsh judgment, how do I relate to people who are full of it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't refuse to say in the right places, in the right context, in venues that can handle it and hold it and know what I'm saying and laugh with me, this is all bullshit, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. It has to be named in all its harshness. Now, their word for bullshit was sin, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe the, the only way we're going to catch it is to use this can't call it a four-letter word anymore. It's an eight-letter <laughs> word. <laughs> uh, and this is what Christians who want to live on a false innocence, uh, you know, that, well, I'm not going to say that it's bullshit. We have to love everybody. Right. And then Why? they never call anyone out. I right? know. Uh, uh, how come you're not willing to love your liberal Democratic friends as generously as you love your political party? Mm. Mm or forgive your mm -hmm. uh, political party. Mm. People cannot see their own contradictions because they've done no shadow work. Mm. No. This scapegoating thing feels so huge. Huge. Especially today. for us and how we think about how we engage. And I love that you said, you use this, this term othering, you mm. know, othering. That, that the ways in which we can engage contemplatively is not to be passive and just say, oh, well, I'm going to be non-dual, therefore I have no opinion, but to speak prophetically to what is not true mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. not demonizing people who hold different opinions than us. Or let it suffocate your own heart that you're losing sleep over your anger. Mm. Yeah. Or you're, you're, um, you're holding of this loathing for this other person then this other person is in control. Mm. Uh, you can't give them that kind of power. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that value. I keep bringing it up. Your values are so good, Richard. But the value of devotion to see the sacred heart yes. in everything. Right. Mm -hmm. That requires us oh, to yeah. speak powerfully. But then again, remember, yeah, yeah. this person who I disagree with still has the sacred heart of Christ. And I... I I have to relate to that more than the the opinions in which we don't agree or see eye to eye. It helps us see that the other is us. Right? Yeah, exactly. That, that interdependability. It's not a word. Interdependence? Um, interdependence uh, of one another. Interdependence dependability? Yeah. Should we just make one up? <laughs> yeah, let's make up more words. Okay. Um, but it speaks to me too of like just like the individual individualistic nature of uh, the Western world and in particular America, where we hold up the lone hero, the self-created person, lone hero, way yeah. over community building. The art. Western movie, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> John Wayne is the icon of America, mm -hmm. um, and so you know, there's part of this as we enter into uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in a political climate, and we feel like that individualism is held up on one hand and yet we feel like we have very little personal agency in yeah. politics. Mm -hmm. How do we hold both that gift of showing up in our full personhood as, um, as political agency people? And, yeah. yeah. And not get lost in the, I'm just one person. What, what does it matter what I do? And maybe it speaks to the othering piece, but there, I'm still kind of grappling with something to hang on to in there. Mm. 
I have to admit, it must be my nine wing. I give in to that a lot. Mm. That it's not going to make any difference. Mm. <laughs> uh, almost a total cynicism mm. about my political agency. Now, part of it is, if I can say so, because I've had a lot of power in my life to influence and to change people's minds, so I let myself off the hook uh, because I've written books and all that. Because uh, I, I, I try to understand why I often don't feel the urgency to be at this action or, or to uh, sign this statement. I do sign most statements that people invite me to send. But uh, my hermit role gives me an out that I don't feel I'm helping my journey by going to every crowd that invites me into it. Uh, so the reason I'm saying that is I do think we all have to really know what our vocation is. Mm -hmm. When in the living school I give those different levels of activism, that's what I'm trying to liberate. It's not just what is the need, but what is the call. Now, when call and need come together, thank God some people are down there today protesting or carrying placards. I will bless them. Uh, but more and more, that isn't my call, but it's somebody's call, and I will encourage them to follow it. So try to balance that out, or you'll live in paralysis, or guilt, or obsession. You know, uh, about your use of your own power. I've got to do it, or to hell with it, I, I've given up on that. You know. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Well, it's kind of how we we think that activism is, you know, just the the protest, <laughs> you know, yes, the the picket, yeah. the you know, picketing yes. and the the signs and the the rallies, and yet, you know, as you were describing earlier, our our every choice is making a political statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think what you're helping us recognize is that we make political choices with our whole lives that can reflect a view of the universal Christ. Mm -hmm. Very nice. From, yes. you know, where we buy our food and, and what kinds yeah. of food we eat to uh, how we choose to spend our time, what we engage with, what we don't. Mm -hmm. That's helpful for me um, at is. this stage of my life because I too, I'm like, oh man, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not at every rally. Yes. You know, sometimes I'm taking my kids to soccer practice. <laughs> but yes. just just to, to have that frame of locating where in my set of choices I can choose mm -hmm. differently. Right, right. Yeah, the complexity of it is you have to show up where you can in your full your full self and your full power and not get lost of what you what you can't do, right? Right. Um and you know this is something and we we've mentioned white privilege. Um and this brings to mind for me of just like how our human bodies speak to politics with race, gender, ability, um, and health. 
what, what might it look like for the followers of Jesus to approach the healing of bodies and relationship to bodies of all types as a political act? Mm. Our own body. Our own body, but also just the, the diversity of bodies of, um, yes. you know, the way they've been classified in such ways as race, gender, yeah. ability. You know what it strikes me? There's facticity again. I can't explain it away, mm. dang it. Mm-hmm. This is a disabled person trying to talk to me and I don't know what they're saying. Do you understand? Just the pure facticity of it makes me feel very uncomfortable and very powerless. I, I have to admit that's often my weakest point is disabled people who oh, I, I don't know what they're saying. Maybe it reveals how much I've relied on verbal skills all my life. And knowing what people are saying and knowing what I'm saying back and forth. When half of that is cut out and I really can't understand another person. I admit this as a sin, as a fault, as a weakness. I want to get away because I can't negotiate this encounter. Mm. I'm afraid I'm going to say the totally wrong thing, which I've done more than once with people who I can't understand. Uh, if anybody with a speech impediment, I, I just want to move away from it. The total facticity of that and absurdity of that really humiliates me and scares me. I'm sure it has to do with my verbal ability. And I'm so used to being able to talk. And then people who can't play my game, the facticity of there are people on this earth who can't play my game. Then, you know, just understanding. I I remember saying this to some bishops years ago. All our concerns about dogma and doctrine. Well, what about all the people on this earth who are mentally ill, who can't understand, who will never understand the dogma of the Immaculate Conception or the, uh, uh, you know, incarnation and all this thing. It can't depend on that. All we need is one fact. This woman, this man's mind is incapable of understanding the doctrines of the church. The argument is over. It can't depend upon believing doctrines. Our God would not have created this fact, Mm. this fact. So facticity, in all of its scariness, has a great ability to humble you, to broaden you, to make you redefine the question. What is the question? Uh, We usually went to all kinds of extremes. We'd create things like limbo and purgatory, (laughs) little intermediate zones, well, or just the answer, Well, you know, my little boy will never know the doctrines of the church. His mind doesn't work. Uh, That's one way of saying it. Well, God will take care of it. That was probably the perfect answer. Mm. You know, he will not believe the way we do. He will not understand. Therefore, believing and understanding the way we do is not an absolute norm. Mm -hmm. And what mothers will invariably say, God will take care of it. I know that. Mm-hmm. She, her love overrides verbal truth and mental understanding. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've encountered that again and again, mainly from mothers and fathers, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they will not deny salvation to their children, mm-hmm. even though they know they don't fit the bill. <laughs> well, that's just it. It's just, you know, when I think about bodiliness and its political statement Mm -hmm. i think about the fact that bodiliness in creation itself right makes it makes me think of the fiat of god saying let it be and it is good Mm -hmm. that it shames our systems Mm -hmm. any system whatsoever that would Mm -hmm. declare that any created body be it human animal or planetary would would not be good or not worthy or somehow less than yes. other bodies to, yes. to place those in a hierarchy of worth. The, 
the human um, arrogance <laughs> yes. to do that in light of what we know about this, the universal Christ and also this, the fiat of it is good, it is good, it is very good. So I don't know, that, that helps me um, recognize that there's, a, as you're saying, Richard, it's humbling to see humbling. How, humbling. how twisted we've gotten to think that we can place an order on creation that separates yeah. these bodies from being worthy, yeah. these bodies from being better or more righteous or more uh, privileged, uh, you know, these bodies as being more worth listening to than others. Mm-hmm. Opinions and theories of, of worthiness are an escape from facticity. Mm. You know, facticity is just sitting there right in front of you. Mm-hmm. My little boy with Down syndrome or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. There it is, staring you in the face. So what we will do is move to the side and create who's capable and who's handy capable and incapable. And mm-hmm. You gotta watch theories and concepts. We need them, but we don't need them when it comes to understanding the human soul. Mm-hmm. There'll, there'll, there'll never be enough categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, there won't. <laughs> I think it's one of the reasons why I, I love your teaching on the universal Christ so much, Richard, and just your general posture of Franciscan incarnationalism, because I do think that all of our theology that has separated spirit from matter and spirit from bodiliness has perpetuated and enabled these uh, oppressive structures Mm. that separate. Our our very theology has made room for it. Mm. And so I think there's something um, just radically holistic and healing about the universal Christ that can re-plug us into our bodies Mm -hmm. so that we can plug back into each other in a new Mm. system of order, a, a new way of structuring our relationships. And stop calling embodiment sin, flesh. we got a lot of unlearning to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to point out, Opie, my dog, has in the last few minutes scooted closer to me. <laughs> so he's laying on my toes. <laughs> now what made him want to connect with my... There, he's turning again. <laughs> Opie, what do you like about my feet, huh? There, he's... He's safe for yeah. some reason. Yeah. Just like your baby's at your breast or yours. Uh-huh. Facticity gives, gives them comfort. Mm-hmm. And that we called such facticity temptation, mm-hmm. especially female facticity. Uh-huh. Yeah, no kidding. All it was was temptation, sin, which ended up then becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, mm-hmm. that we... We let women be nothing more than a temptation mm. to our male purity. Mm. What a bunch of garbage. Or right? a maternal saint. Those were our options. Right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The Madonna <laughs> complex. Right. Speaking of dualism, um, <laughs> mm. you know, one of my growing observations with some of this us versus them uh, dualistic dichotomy in our country right now and the conflict that we're facing in, in a lot of other Western countries as well seems to be between a conservative or nationalist concern, concern that is seeking to honor tradition and values mm-hmm. uh, to the point of resisting all and any change. And then there's the liberal pension for change often at, at the price of dismissing the values and throwing them out mm-hmm. and throwing tradition out. How does understanding the universal Christ help us to transcend and include both perspectives of this polarized divide? That is so important in my mind because it's tearing us apart. Uh, we call them culture wars. And the, um, the person who is called conservative, as you know, tends to over-identify with some or the other cultural symbols. Um, the person who calls himself herself liberal tends to identify with none of them. Uh, they say, they really do, but they're not being totally honest. They're so eager to be, uh, you know, a flat earth society, so eagle, eager to be egalitarian that they've never committed themselves to anything. Mm-hmm. 
There's no devotion. Yeah. You don't find devotion in most liberals. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in most conservatives, you don't find self-criticism. Mm. Uh, ability to recognize that my culture is just that, my culture. Mm. <laughs> and I, I can't raise mine up by putting others down or denying others. Um, that white supremacy would reemerge in the United States in our lifetime after the French Revolution and the American Revolution centuries ago, huh? Uh, is really sad and really cause for hopelessness. <laughs> you couldn't have written it much clearer than we did in the Declaration of Independence in the American Constitution. That was our thing. That was what the Statue of Liberty stood for. And now people want to redivide into groups because that group is not worthy. That group is not right. You'll notice that it almost always comes down to some notion of earning. We earned it. They didn't. That's the non-kingdom. The non-kingdom. Any notion of counting, weighing, measuring, earning. And listen to the language of the typical right-wing person. In the first few sentences will be some word about uh, I deserve, they don't deserve. So there's not a, a radical gratitude that none of us deserve anything. Mm -hmm. You don't deserve the next breath out of your mouth. I, I don't find my conservative friends today live in that radical gratitude for the undeservedness of all of it. But there's a feeling that my hard work, my loyalty to the army or whatever else, which is lovely, has earned me all these benefits. Boy, that demon does not die easily. Once you think you're entitled mm. and your behavior has earned you privilege. Mm. Uh, if we really could follow the journey, I watched three hours of TV last night, I set them apart to watch the history of the Latino Americans, starting at the very first, you know, to enter, and it was Santa Fe, they came right into this area, they showed the map, you know, and how it emerged, and how again and again the, the Latino Americans were were disenfranchised as the Anglo took over and told them they were not worthy, they did not own, it never got the billing that the black people got because slavery certainly seemed, rightly so, much worse. But uh, there's the weighing and measuring. Okay, this is worse. This deserves more attention. You Latinos don't deserve any attention because you never had it so bad. Uh, some of the stories last night would have made me cry. Uh, when was it? In the 20s or 30s? We deported thousands of Mexicans uh, right before the, and after the Depression. You'd see these women walking with sacks on their back, just following the railroad tracks back to Mexico. No provision for them. Leave everything they'd worked for here just because they were Mexican. So it's always a, a creating of a new uh, index of worthiness and deservedness. And do you see how Radical Grace, which was the name of our first magazine here, uh, undercuts any notion of earning, weighing, measuring, deserving. Mm. That has to go before you can know God. I'm going to repeat it. That has to go before you can know God. Uh, you cannot, nor can you know the, the fruitfulness of your own soul mm -hmm. until you plug into that source of infinite love. 
sound part of what you're speaking to is going to be experiential right of that yeah, radical all, grace yeah. and not just the yeah. here's what it means from the dogmatic level or how this yeah, is yeah. you have to have that felt sensation almost mm-hmm. of of that unearned gift to yes. be able to even speak like that you do you do there's just so much anxiety in our culture and i think at large in mm. the world right now because I think in any times of great upheaval and change, there's just a tremendous yeah. amount of toxic anxiety. What am I going to end up with? Yeah. And so I think one of the things that I appreciate about um, having the framework of the universal Christ is one, to see that we're all in this together. Yep. And that if we don't well, begin to reorient uh, ourselves mm-hmm. to recognizing that it's, it's, it's just us, it's not us and them. It's just, this is it, you this know, this is it. And, mm-hmm. and to stop giving in to that diabolos, that dividing mm-hmm. energy that wants to separate and pit us against one another, um, but also to recognize that we can trust that, that we're not in this alone. So that we're in this together also is, um, contains the, the spiritual movement of, of Christ and evolution. In other words, we, we are all participating in this. And I think there's something about that that gives me an ability to relax my own anxiety so that my anxiety doesn't drive me to clinging to, attacking to, uh, identifying with certain you know, uh, political outcomes. Mm. And I, just, I feel like that's so important for us right now to kind of orient toward how how we can together um, relax into the change that's happening and relax into changing together and having the hope for something better than where we are. Mm. I mean, it, it makes me think of those healing moments with Jesus where what he was essentially saying is, you are not what you have been told is wrong with you. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's and a nice way to put it. The, yes. the faith of the, of the person who's being healed is saying, I believe in what I cannot yet see. And I believe that there's something more that could be possible. And so, I don't know, that gives me a lot of hope. I don't know if that it makes should, sense, but the, the energy of Christ alive in the example of Jesus seems to indicate that, that there is more, that there's, a, there's an imagination of, of something beyond this mm-hmm. that we can live into together, but that we can also trust we're unfolding into. Um, it just makes it so difficult when our political system is structured the way that it is, mm-hmm. where it's like you're either in this camp or you're in that one, you know? Yeah, and we need each other now more than ever with the climate crisis to be able to to look at where our world is at and how we can actually support our own continued existence on this planet. Uh, so maybe that, that comes to this question, Richard, as a way to kind of round out the end. Um, you know, we, we have to just acknowledge that this is a heated political yeah, landscape very, right now. Very. So how do we live into the universal Christ? Is there a practice that you can recommend as a way to maybe it's reframe that radical gratitude or grace, but how, is there a practice you could recommend to stand and hold and be Christ in such moments of, uh, heated political milieu that we just find ourselves in right now? Mm. I think I said this yesterday, didn't I? But let me repeat it in this context. Mm -hmm. We need to create rituals of not knowing and not needing to know. Mm -hmm. This people who live in such certitude, could you practice not being certain, Mm -hmm. not being right? Would there there be a way of listing a whole bunch of things and uh, we could say, as a litany response, I don't know, and I don't need to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who's right? I don't know, and I don't need to know. Something to imprint this on the modern brain. And now I know people will really resist that, because you see, your knowing is your control tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, remember a man, I told you that, did I, in Norwich? Julian's own cathedral, uh, a man said, you're not going to take away my, my well-trained English mind from me coming from America. I, I said, I don't know what I said, but I, I was lost for words. Uh, 
That's what it sounds like to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You're asking me to stand, stand helpless before reality. If you've been trained ever since high school, that knowing makes you better, knowing gives you A's, knowing makes you admired, there has to be some comparable arena in which we value, deliberately value, not knowing and not even needing to know. So maybe you create it for yourself. I don't know that it has to be a social, but it wouldn't be a bad thing for the center to do it, some of our retreats. I've been saying we need liturgies of lamentation, but we need liturgies of not knowing. Wow. What's so powerful about that is that it's that radical simplicity it is. that you're talking about. And it's also, no. it seems like if I can't be humble, <laughs> if I can't live in humility, I, I can't connect because I'm so busy being right about my own views of how I how think things right should I go and, yeah. and how wrong you are. And uh-huh. So I really appreciate that, Richard. That's an invitation no, for us to Thank live you. into human humility as a, as a practice of connection. Yes. Mm-hmm. And vulnerability pra- too. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Connection and vulnerability. Mm. You stand naked for a few, I don't know. I, uh, I don't have an answer for that. Mm. Mm. Maybe, maybe we could create three or four different responses. Mm. And uh, yeah. You'll do that after I'm gone. <laughs> Was Way Richard to any good? Well, I don't know. I have serious doubts. You know, uh, yeah, it'd be worth creating, though. Well, should we look at some listener questions? Let's do it. This part you can erase. This is for Richard. This is Juan, the Franciscan friar that. Uh, you ran into in the state of Puebla. Yes. Hope you're doing well. Here's my question. Lovely man. Do those in publicly vowed or ordained life, like members of Catholic religious orders or pastors, have an intrinsic calling to be prophets for human rights? That's my question. Thanks. Well, hello, Juan. First of all, I know you are one of those. You live it. Uh, I personally believe that there is something inherently prophetic about the Franciscan charism, uh, inherently critiquing the system by its appreciation, central appreciation, for things like uh, nonviolence, ecology, uh, the love of, of the enemy. All the biggies are right there in Francis's life. In terms of my three boxes that I know you've heard me talk about, order, disorder, reorder. Uh, Franciscan charism is second box, which leads some people, not all of us, and you know as well as I, into reorder. And unfortunately, it allows some people to revert to order, that our job is just to chant the Psalms every, every day and maintain the status quo. But uh, our, our central position is the second box, to offer a critique to institutional Christianity. And you know, our Pope Francis said as much uh, when he took the name Francis, uh, that this was his reason for doing it. So not all religious life emphasizes it uh, co- uh, collectively as much as we are supposed to. As you know, we don't always, but it, it's written in our stars. And if we don't see it, we're not looking at the stars. We're not looking at our own documents, our own heritage. And part of the reason for that, of course, is after the Council of Trent, uh, our priests, our ordained Franciscans, became pretty much just like all other priests. There was such an insistence on uniformity, on the building a, a wall of protection against those 
terrible Protestants. <laughs> and so there was no room for disorder in the Catholic Church. So our recent history is not very countercultural, but our original history is undeniably so. And you're a marvelous example. I'm not flattering you, but I, I can't forget all we talked about and you, the places you drove us to in Mexico. So you're living it. Uh, I'm just talking about it. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Brody, and I've been listening to the podcast for a while now. Uh, I'm 22 years old, and the past couple of years have brought about a lot of questions and deconstruction. It's been a journey that has led me to leave my church, like both doctrines I once held unwaveringly, and question the whole process along the way. Simultaneously, it has brought me into deeper relationship with others, made me let go of anxious ponderings over my calling, and accept the uncertainty of this life and my beliefs. It has brought change in my vision from seeing God as some lofty being in the sky to becoming a breath of love in the present moment. I've stopped finding God solely in the spaces of musical worship, solitude, or church communion. And I now find that God is everywhere. If only I open my eyes to see the sacrality of the environment or person whom I'm with in the present moment. And since this deconstructing, I've found others who are unable to connect with God through traditional spiritual practices. And I know that those practices can be uplifting and life-giving, but for some they aren't. And I find that this can be demoralizing, heavy, and even oppressive when it makes them feel as if they aren't truly Christian. And so when this is the case with someone across from me, what are some ways in which I can encourage them to see that those practices are not the only way? Specifically, how do we do this in conservative circles where it is hard to put experience ahead of what the Bible says? Wow, Brody, I can tell you're in the fray. Uh, let me say this, first of all that don't take it upon yourself that you have to do this, that it is your job to convince people these things are not necessary. Uh, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. They're going to have to come to the beginnings, the beginnings of questioning, the, be the beginnings of disappointment, the beginnings of recognizing some contradictions or some absurdities or, uh, hey, this really isn't working. <laughs> uh, show me where it works. Uh, but that phrase can't come from you because it sounds too arrogant. Uh, so don't put it upon yourself that you've got to present them with a different theo theological worldview. Now, if they ask you for your worldview in a humble way, say, well, here's the way I see it. But say it with a humble voice, uh, an invitatory voice, but not a pressured voice or a frantic voice that insists that uh, you join my club or you're stupid. Uh, it's so hard for any of us to do that. And because I've made the mistake much of my life as a one on the Enneagram, uh, I'm especially prone to seeing that. But there is no one way to do that. How do we tell people that I, I can't go back to that? Uh, or it doesn't speak to me anymore. Or... Uh, but I'm not interested in throwing out my Christian faith. So pay your loyalty cards. Pay your, your dues to the tradition. And you've got to let people to settle their own insecurities. Let them know that you're not a rebel. You're not an iconoclast. You're not a heretic. Uh, that's one reason I teach the way I teach that in my early years I was called that so much, and I realized the only way I could uh, somewhat uh, soften those vo voices of accusation was to quote the tradition a lot. Mm -hmm. So maybe that'll help you. Uh, I know it's harder, but uh, it makes you harder to be dismissed. Mm 
And it's one reason I use scripture a lot, to make it hard for my evangelical friends to dismiss me. <laughs> they have to at least say, well, that is a scripture. What does it mean? You'll do it because you've got a calm voice that asks the question in a loving way, it seems to me. I, I also find in this question the humility of one who's recognized that what many of us have left isn't Christianity. What many of us, what most of us are leaving in this great exodus, this millennial exodus away from the church is the Sunday tradition, the Sunday church experience. It's the small F faith. It's the, it's the idea that it's, you have to believe things in this way or you're out. Mm, yeah. The club. Yeah, it's, it's club Christianity. It's not the big T tradition that no, you're talking isn't. about. And no, I found a, a tremendous amount of comfort, and even when I talk to my friends about this, in just saying it's okay. It's okay to leave church. You know, it's okay to leave the Sunday experience if what you are doing, and in that, if what you're doing is joining in the bigger T tradition of learning about the mystics. Going to something bigger. Discovering yeah. that there's other ways of yes. interpreting theology. Yes. That there's other ways of praying. Mm. That there's other ways of, of um, experiencing Christ in the world. There's a bigger way to do that. I think it's invitational, as you yeah. said. And it's less about like, well, you have to do it this way or that way. And it's more about affirming people's experience and trust, learning how to trust that. Yeah, it sounds like Brody's also, it sounds like you're mirroring your friends too. You're not just mm. telling them what to do, but receiving and mirroring back. Uh, that it's okay. That it's okay and where the gaps are and what your experience is. So that's a, that's a beautiful friend to have in your circle. Yeah, mm. yeah. Your non-reactive response, Brody, will be helping them a great deal. That you don't get frightened and run for cover and uh, quote authorities or whatever. That leads you into antagonistic thinking. You You don't feel like that's what you're doing. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. In the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.